Great memories here. Uh, thank you, Carlton, for putting it together, and Tammy, and all of you who've been involved. And uh, it, it is a privilege to come back and 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 uh, see so many folks that had such an influence on my life growing up, uh, especially Steve and Brenda. Steve, mom used to keep Lindsay when she was a little girl, and uh, Steve drove me to school every day uh, for four or five years, I guess. And we'd listen to Bert and Kurt in the mornings, and and, and laugh on the way uh, to Magic 96, and that's a memory forever etched in my, in my mind. And, and just having, you know, folks like him and in our school that, that truly cared about us, we, that was something we knew as students, um, is that we had some people that really did care about who we were and, and as we were growing up and we could go to as uh, with teenagers with our problems and... and uh, so, be able to circle it all back around. A couple, uh, probably two or three years ago, I guess, Andy Lehman, who's the vice president of Life Song for Orphans, and I, he and I are very close friends. And Andy called me and said, I just met some people that know you. And he, he began describing all of this. And I said, man, that church is out at Fort McClellan. And, and, and so he was telling me about the ministry that you guys have here and about Micah's Hope and, and all the different things that, were, that uh, was going on. And and uh, so, wow, it's kind of funny that my friend from Illinois had to tell me about what was going on here because at the time I had not heard uh, about this ministry. And, and then to hear the story of how this fund got started and the lives that you guys have been able to bless is, is really incredible. Um, of course, mom and dad are here. My son, Jared, is traveling with me. It's my oldest son. And uh, he, he's not real interested in hearing my football stories and telling him about being all pro and all that, and he, he didn't buy into it. One of the most familiar stories in all of Scripture is uh, the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, I remember, and, and this sermon is going to be a little different than what you're typically used to probably because I'm going to share a good bit about our story of how God has worked in our, our uh, family. And Steve, you're going to have to help me because my watch died. And I don't have my phone, so don't call it. Um, so just do something. What time is it right now? Okay. Um, so the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, yeah, and, and, and so this is going to be a little different today. Share some from the text and then kind of share how God took our family from, from here to where he's got us now and, and what we're doing and, and, and circle all that back to to what this means for you today uh, through this text. But the, the story of the Good Samaritan is one of the most familiar stories in all of Scripture other than the, the story of, the, uh, you know, of Jesus' birth and the resurrection and Easter. Um, it, it's just a story that, that most everybody's heard. It, whether or not they even know it's a story from the Bible, they know what a Good Samaritan is. We even have a Good Samaritan law. I mean, even Seinfeld used that on their last episode, the Good Samaritan Law. So it, people know the Good Samaritan when they hear it. But it's a, actually a very deep story, and there's a lot to it. If, and if you remember, there was an expert in the law. Uh, the ESV Bible calls him a, a lawyer, actually. But other translations will say an expert in the law who came to Jesus and was testing him like they love to do. And, and was saying, what must I do to be saved? And he's poking his chest out, you know, because here I am, I'm an expert, I'm a lawyer, I know all of this stuff. And Jesus begins to question him, and they get to the, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I love where it says, 
but wanting to justify himself. It's in verse 29 of Luke chapter 10. He says, but wanting to justify himself, one translation says, looking for a loophole. Because this lawyer knew that Jesus had turned the tables on him. And he says, looking for a loophole, he says, well, exactly who is my neighbor? Because he knew that he had not loved his neighbor as himself. Jesus knew it and the crowd knew it. And it's from that question that Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. We'll start reading in verse 30. And Jesus tells the story. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds and pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn. And took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. It's a powerful story that Jesus tells with this good Samaritan. And I think it's very interesting, the characters that Jesus chooses to use in this story. The priest and the Levite. The religious establishment. The religious leaders of the day. Is who Jesus chooses to use in this story to tell him about this man who'd been beat up, bloodied and bruised and left for dead on the side of the road. And the two people that, Je- that Jesus uses in the story that went by him and literally stepped to the other side so that they didn't get close to him were the religious leaders of the day. If we were to bring this up to a modern day version, we might say the pastors and the elders. The pastor was going down the road and stepped to the other side. And then the elders came down and they stepped to the other side or deacons or whatever terminology you may use. But it was the religious leaders of the day who stepped to the other side. And then he said, but a Samaritan. If you remember, the Samaritans were hated by the Jews Their nickname for them were were, were half-breeds. They despised them. And it's that very person that Jesus chooses to use to say, but when this Samaritan came by, he had compassion. I love using a modern-day parable of this to think about. You know, growing up here, I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania now. We just had the worst winter ever in Pittsburgh. Even my neighbor who's lived, he's an old retired guy, he's lived in Pittsburgh all of his life, so that's the worst one I ever remember. We had 69 inches of snow. It was just crazy. Every day it just seemed like it was snowy. But growing up here, 
And you know what I'm talking about. You even start to say the word snow and schools start closing. Everybody goes and buys milk and bread, right? All that kind of stuff. Imagine yourself going over Camp Cataquilla Mountain one night. Now, when I tell that story in Wisconsin, they don't get it. But you get what I'm talking about, right? Camp Cataquilla. So you're going over Camp Cataquilla Mountain one night. A deer jumps out in front of you. It's about 33 degrees, cold, raining. Your car goes in the ditch. If you're like me, you have Sprint. You have no cell coverage anywhere around here. (laughs) But your phone's busted up. You can't call anybody. And there you are. And you're thinking, this is how my life is going to end. Dodging a deer on Camp Cataquilla Mountain Road in a ditch dying of hypothermia. Well, this just stinks. And then you hear a car coming. And you know that that time of the night that nobody ever comes over that road. It's too far to walk to get help. And it's just always desolate. And you're thinking that a car is, I can't believe that a car is actually coming. And as it gets closer, you begin to think, I realize who that car is. I know who's in that car. It's Carlton. It's the pastor. And he slows down and you look at him. You think, God, you have saved me because the time of my life when I needed the help the most, you've sent my pastor. And he looks at you and you look at him and he drives right on by. And you think, now, wait a minute, Lord, this isn't how this is supposed to work. When I'm here dying, my pastor drives by. And then you hear another car coming and you think, well, Good night. There's never two cars on this road. This is a miracle. And as it gets closer, it's something bigger, and it's, it's more of a van. And right on the front, it's got Grace Fellowship. And inside of it are the elders of the church and the deacons and the servants. And you think, well, that's why he didn't stop, because they're right behind him. They're going to stop and help me, and they just zoom right on by. And then you hear boom, 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 boom. You think, oh, no, not the teenagers. <laughs> and the car stops and psh, it sits down and they jump out and pull up their pants and say how can I help you that's the picture that we get from this story is that when this person was in their time of need the most it was the church who didn't stop it was the religious establishment who just walked to the other side of the road and kept going So what was it about this Samaritan? What was different that caused the Samaritan to stop and invest in this man's life? And and again, growing up, hearing this story at, at Bible time, at VBS, and at Sunday school, I began to dig a little deeper into it, and there were four things that I saw. You see, this Samaritan decided he had, he had compassion, and he decided that he was going to get involved in this man's life. He was going to enter into his pain. And when we enter into someone else's pain, it will also cost us personally. And there's four things that I saw in this story that it cost the Samaritan as he as he entered into this man's pain. The first one was it cost him emotionally. It says that he had compassion on him. He had compassion. His heart was moved. There was something in him that stirred up within him to say, you can't just keep going. And you know, when you get involved in the hurt of someone else's life, it costs us too. 
It's the way God wired us. It's what real fellowship is really all about. It's more than just drinking coffee together. It's entering in into each other's pain and sharing burdens together. When you sit and you listen to someone's story and they're telling you about all the stuff that they're going through in their life and how the walls are just coming down and it just seems like everything is happening, you don't really feel like running and and just, just having a party after that. Why? Because God wired us in such a way that we we want to enter into that with them and when we leave our hearts are heavy and burdened for them when you get involved in the pain of other people's lives it will cost you emotionally some of you were crying just watching this video today why it's the way God wired us the second thing that it cost him was some time you see, on that road from Jerusalem to Jericho, that was, a, that was a dangerous road to be on. This was not the kind of road that you went on a Sunday afternoon and took your time and enjoyed the view. We lived in Lynchburg, Virginia for a while. I did my seminary work at Liberty. And just 40 miles to the west of Lynchburg is the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountain Range. It is absolutely gorgeous. And during October, you can't hardly get your car up there because the leaves are changing and you go to those lookout spots and it's just some of the most beautiful scenery you'll ever see. You want to drive as slowly as you can and enjoy it and take it in. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is the exact opposite of that. You wanted to get from one end of it to the other as quickly as you possibly could. It was a road of commerce. If you were going from Jerusalem to Jericho or Jericho to Jerusalem, you either had goods to sell or you had money to go and buy. And so it was a dangerous road to be on. And you wanted to get there as quickly as you could from point A to point B. So to stop and help this guy on the side of the road meant that you were changing your schedule. If you're like me, you had it all mapped out. When I go on a trip, I have to look and see where the good restaurants are and how we can get there for lunch and then get to this one for dinner and and, and everybody has to fall in line so I can be happy. (laughs) This guy was... He, 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 he realized there was something more important than his own schedule. And it was this person who was in need. And he entered into his pain with him. The third thing is related to it because it also cost him some of his own comfort. That road was so dangerous, it actually had a nickname and it was called the Bloody Way. Because there were so many people beat up, just like this man was, on the road. Because it was a road of commerce, robbers knew that. They knew that people that were on that road had money or stuff. So this was a prime area to stop and and, and steal from them and beat them up. The more I began to study that piece of it, because in my heart and in my mind, I've always seen the priest and Levite as just being cold-hearted and just not caring, and that's why they didn't stop. Now I wonder if it was more that they were afraid to stop. It was too risky to stop and help this guy. A couple of years ago, 
I was in Chicago and I'd been down on the south side for some meetings and I had a late flight back. And you know, at this point, I've, I've traveled so much, I just use a GPS. I never even look at a map anymore. And, and sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes it's not. But I, I get in with my GPS and I put in Midway Airport. And if you're not familiar with that area, from the south side to Midway is not the best part of town. Actually, when you see a lot of the murders and you see a lot of the stuff in the news, that's in that area there just south of the airport. But one of the things I had to do was stop and put gas in the car before I returned the rental car to the airport. And, and so I just put in the GPS airport, closest gas station, and I pull in. It's late at night. Or it's dark outside. It's in the winter. Sun's gone down early. And I realize as I pull into the gas station, um, this is a pretty dangerous area of town. And so I thought, you know, I'm just not going to look around. I'm not going to make eye contact with anybody. And, and, and so I get the gas and I'm putting it in and I'm just praying, Lord, let that gas go in fast and let me get out of here. And it was almost an audible voice of the Lord saying, hey, big boy, you know, you preach that sermon all the time. What if, what if you looked up now and across the street was a lady's car broken down? Would you have the guts to go and help her? And it really hit me, maybe with this priest and the Levite. Maybe they were just too afraid of the risk involved to actually stop. And I thought, you know what, Lord, let me finish filling this up and get in the car and on the interstate we'll finish this conversation <laughs> just get me back to the airport when we see the pain of others when we get involved it costs us emotionally it costs us some time costs us some comfort and the last thing that we see in this story is it cost him some of his own money he put the man on his own animal took him to an inn Checked him into the inn. By the way, he poured on oil and wine. So he took his own stuff and began to heal this man up. The, the, the oil was for soothing and the wine was for healing like a disinfectant. And he, he takes his own things and pours them on the man. And then he checks him into this hotel, to the inn. Gets up the next morning and then tells the innkeeper, I don't know how long he's going to need to stay. He's beat up pretty badly. So here's two denarii to cover everything so far. I've got to go do my business. When I finish that, I'll come back through, let him stay as long as he needs to stay, give him whatever he needs. And then when I come back through, I'll pay for everything. It's covered. When we get involved, when we, when we take on the pain of others, it will cost us. In this story, we see that it cost him emotionally. It cost him some of his own time where he had to change his schedule. It cost him some of his own comfort where he had to change his priorities. And it cost him some of his own money where he had to change his own budget. And when I think about orphan care, when I think about the lives of children that I've seen with my own eyes and then I see in these videos and we hear the stories of what's going on, I wonder sometimes if as the church, we have not been the ones to step to the other side of the road for too long. You see, personally in my life, 
I can guarantee you that I was that person. I didn't come to tell you that I'm a good Samaritan. I came to confess to you that I'm the priest. When I first started in the ministry here at Gladeview, then we went over to Mississippi and served there for a while in Tampa, Florida. And it wasn't until we were in Pensacola that God really began to speak to me about this. You see, Beth and I met at Jacksonville State University. Beth, Beth was Beth Paris. Some of you probably know the Parises. Her dad had like 142 brothers and sisters up there in Jacksonville. Uh, R.G. Uh, Paris and, and Milton was her dad. He was an insurance guy. And, um, a wonderful family. But Beth and I met at Jacksonville State at the BCM. One night they were having a, a little thing and, and I was doing a little uh, introduction of something because I always had to be up front, uh, everybody. And, and, and Heather Whitestone was there, if you remember Heather, who became Miss America later, who was deaf, and she had an interpreter. And Beth was her interpreter. Well, I thought Beth was prettier than Miss America, so I chased Beth around for a while. And not long after that, we started dating, and, and we got serious pretty quickly. And one of the things Beth told me was, she said, you need to understand that whomever I marry needs to agree that one day we will adopt a deaf child. <laughs> That's kind of heavy for her early on in the relationship, but this was something God had put in her heart. So I looked at her again and looked at how pretty she was, and I said, well, I've dreamed of that all my life. Where have you been? <laughs> So we started on a lie, and it just went from there. And, but you know, I had some cousins. They were adopted. But it was, it, back in the day, we didn't talk about it. it we kind of knew, but man, you'd never bring that up in a discussion. And, and we kind of know how the culture of adoption was back 30, 40 years ago. I wasn't really against it, but it was not something that I'd really thought about. But... After we got married, I went into the ministry, and, and again, we kind of moved around in, in these different churches, and we found ourselves in Pensacola at Hillcrest Baptist Church. Some of you may be familiar with it. Willie Rice, who was at Hillcrest, was the senior pastor there, and they were the fastest-growing church in north, northwest Florida. It was just amazing. That church had gone from like 400 to 1,600 people in just a couple of years, and, and we were living the American dream. God had blessed us with two kids, Heather and Jared, and and, 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 and we were, you know, we had the two-car garage, and, and, and life was just like I thought it ought to be. And we had a missionary that came through town. This missionary, uh, my missions pastor came and said, hey, I want you to have dinner with us because this guy works with the deaf in Belarus. So I know that Beth would love to hear that. Beth went on to become a deaf educator. And, and so we, we went to dinner with Bob, and he began to share with us about this ministry he had with the deaf in Belarus. But it wasn't just the deaf he was working with. It was actually a deaf orphanage. And as soon as that kind of came to light, I started getting a stomach ache. And I said, you know, we probably need to go home because <laughs> I knew where that conversation was going to go. And that was in January of 2005. And sure enough, that began those conversations again. And one of the things that I didn't know was that this was... This was more than just this nice thing that Beth had thought about doing. This was something God had put in her heart. This was something that God had made a part of who she was. And in February, they came home from a deacon's meeting and the kids were in the bed and, and we started having the discussion again and, and, 
And I said, you know, tomorrow I'll call and get some answers. I'll call and find out what does a home study cost? Because, you know, as a man, we got two big questions. How much does it cost? And can I love a child the same that wasn't born to me as one that was? That's the two questions men always have. And, and so those are the two things I'm, in my mind, just trying to figure out. And, and, and so as, as that kind of went through, the next day I got on the Internet and put in Belarus International Adoption and came up with this agency in California. And I called the guy up and I said, hey, you know, here's our situation. And he said, well, Belarus is shut down. That's where Bob had been working. And he said, so you can't adopt from there. What, what are you thinking? And I said, well, a child that's under the age of six, we wanted to do the birth order thing, keep it in order, that's deaf, but no other disabilities. I could not handle any other disability. And if he's good in football, that'd be a plus. But no, I didn't say that. Um, and, and he said, well, if I ever hear of anything, I'll let you know. Ten minutes later, he called back and said, check your email. And when I did, this is what I saw. Oh, he's not that sweet. I promise you that. <laughs> Is he Jared? No. His name was Goyajo. He was in Kaifeng, China. And seven months to the day later, we were in Zhengzhou, China. And into our hotel room walks this little four-year-old deaf boy. 24 hours later, we all got into a van and we drove over to his city where he was from. And we pulled into the gates of the orphanage and he was like, hey, I know this place. But then as we stopped the van and we started getting out, he kind of put his head on my shoulder and put his arm around me like, oh, well, that was fun. Now, remember, he's deaf and had no sign language and no communication, so he didn't really understand what was going on. All he knew was for that 24 hours, he was liking what he was seeing so far, and he did not want to go back to that orphanage. And as we went around and to the gates of the orphanage, we had a meeting with the staff, and then they took us to where the kids were were uh, staying and we walked into this courtyard area about a little bit bigger than this platform and there were about 20 to 25 special needs kids and they were all in these little makeshift high chairs but no life to them at all they didn't move they didn't point they didn't giggle they didn't do anything they some just kind of stared up in the sky some with their heads down but that was where they sat pretty much all day and then they took us into the baby room and we walked into the baby room now, I'm holding James. He would not let go of me. He was not going to let go. I'm holding James, and we walked into the baby room, and there were beds, as many as they could get in there, two babies in each bed. And when I looked over and saw them, they had the same blank stare that we saw on the kids outside. And all I remember thinking was, I don't want Heather and Jared to see what I'm seeing. And I remember pushing them back towards the door. And when I did, James began to scream as loud as he could scream. And his grip around my neck got so tight that he literally started choking me. And I remember reaching up and trying to loosen his grip. And it was at that moment that God began to change everything about our life. And everything that we thought was so important, all of a sudden became not so important anymore. And God began to challenge my theology. God began to challenge my thinking about church growth. God began to challenge my thinking about our personal budget. He began to challenge our thinking about our little white house with the two-car garage and the picket fence and all that kind of stuff. He began to challenge everything in my life as I stood right there. I still haven't processed it all, to be honest with you. But God began to change our life that very moment.
Because coming back home from that trip, my next order of business was to raise $10 million to build a gymnasium and a coffee shop and a preschool wing at our church. And I found out that $250 is what Love Without Boundaries needed to do surgeries on these babies with cleft lip and cleft palates to save their lives. I met the founder of Love Without Boundaries face-to-face finally a few months ago. And she told me that once they got involved with James's Orphanage after we were there, that the mortality rate of the kids coming in was 95%. And God just began to challenge me in all these different ways. We built the building. I talk about it in the book. It's one of the great struggles that I have because I love that church. I love that building. But we had no balance. We didn't have a Sunday like this every year. We didn't have something else that people could actually get involved of. It was not part of the DNA of our church to help get people to understand and to get involved. And so I began to study two things coming home from that trip. I began to study what does God's word say, and I began to study what is the reality I know you guys have spent a lot of time here, and you've got, he's already used some of the verses. So let's just, let's just say we know that God's word is pretty clear that we are supposed to care for orphan children. That's a pretty clear command, and, a, and as I say, a privilege that God gives us in Scripture. Because nowhere else does it say pure and undefiled religion. I mean, that, those are some really, really strong words that you could preach on for weeks and weeks. And pastor's right. This is not just for those who are going to adopt a child. Because as I began to study the reality, that's what I began to see. 143 million orphaned and vulnerable children in the world. That doesn't mean 143 million have lost both parents. Only about 18 million of the 143 have lost both parents. That's what we would call a double orphan. But then there's street kids and there's kids that live in families that aren't taking care of them. Or there are kids that one of the things that I've seen in, in some of the countries are, are women who are older that have some, some mental disabilities that are raped and then have children and they can't care for their kids. They're physically not able to. The numbers are so hard to digest. The numbers are so hard to really get firm understanding on. But there's not 143 million kids that need to be adopted. And that was one of the reasons why I wrote Orphan Justice. The subtitle is How to Care for Orphans Beyond Adopting. And I know that for many of you, you're in no position to adopt. God hasn't called you to adopt a child. You may be too young, you may be too old. It may be just something that God's never called you to do. I totally get that and understand that. But James 1.27 was written for all of us. And so what I wanted to do through the book was to show that there are so many other areas that we can get involved in that all of us, no matter if you're 90 years old or 9 years old, that we can experience pure and undefiled religion. And the other thing I began to see, James 1.27 says, care for orphans and widows in their distress. What was their distress? Well, of course, having a family that was either only a one-parent family or, or no parents at all, that's certainly their main distress. But what does that bring on to them? The number of kids who age out of orphanages 
Again, these are, it's so hard to get real statistics on this stuff, but here's the general understanding that you'll hear from people in other countries will tell you this. The kids who age out of orphanages with no families in Ethiopia and in China and in Russia and Haiti, usually the girls become prostitutes, the boys get addicted to drugs, the girls will end up on drugs. Suicide rate is extremely high. HIV rate is extremely high. And I began to look at our response to HIV as a church. It hasn't been so good. Remember, it was the first name it received in the United States was United States was called GRID, G-R-I-D, gay-related immune deficiency. And so we just chalked it up as God's judgment on homosexuals. But then I began to look and see there's hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of babies who are born with HIV that need to be adopted, but yet families are too scared to adopt them because of the wrong thinking that we've had about HIV in the past. How are we as a church going to be accepting to a family that has a child with HIV? How are we going to deal with these types of situations? I could go on hours on that one. Let me move on. In poverty... For most of us, the answer to poverty is pull up your bootstraps. What if they don't have bootstraps to even pull up with? As I stood in James's orphanage that day and looked, even the workers there, let me tell you, it wasn't that they didn't care for the kids. They didn't have what they needed. They didn't have the resources to care for these kids. They didn't have a special nipple for a bottle for the kids with the severe cleft lip and cleft palate to even feed them properly. We're talking a 10-cent nipple that is made by some of these bottling companies. And then racism. We grew up right here in Alabama. It's still a part of our lives. And it is in Pittsburgh, too. And in Wisconsin, and in every other part of the country I've been in, because that's one of the discussions I like to have, because now we also have a son who's, who's African-American. And so all of these different issues, how have we as the church really dealt with them? And I began to see it wasn't a good track record. Trafficking and the link between trafficking and orphan kids because they're so vulnerable. And then I began to study about our own system here in the United States with our foster care system. Did you know that on any given day there's about 450,000 kids in the United States foster system? Out of that, about 106,000, a judge has already determined they can never go back to their original family. They've already, it's called TPR, Termination of Parental Rights. A judge has already said that child can never go back to that original family. And 106,000 of those kids are stuck in the foster system today. They need loving homes. They're not blonde-haired, blue-eyed, six-month-old, healthy infants, by the way. Many of them are 15 years old, 16 years old, 17 years old. Over 1,800 kids will age out of the system this year that have had a TPR, termination of parental rights. Over 27,000 kids will age out of the foster care system this year that were in foster care. So even though they didn't have a TPR, the, the family's not healthy enough for them to really have somebody to go back to. 
And what have we done with this as a church? How have we engaged in this within our own community? And somebody would say, well, I can't adopt, then it's too expensive. I know Chinese adoption, $25,000. Number one, you got help right here. Number two, when you adopt out of the foster system in almost every state, you don't ever pay anything out of pocket. And so some of our thinking is bad thinking because it's bad education. We don't even have the right information to make decisions on. And so here we are as a church and we have to wonder what is it that we can do. One of the things that I did in the book is at the end of each chapter, we have an all, many, and few. Something that anyone can do. Something that everyone can do. No matter who you are, what age you are, how old, doesn't matter, stage of life, nothing. Anyone can do these things. And then we have a section for here's something that many people could do. And then we have a section for here's something that a few people could really do. Because it's the deepest and there's most of commitment and, and all that type of stuff. All, many, and few. Here's what I love about this. With this fund that you have here, this is something that everyone here could be involved in. Everyone here could have a piece of knowing that I have been involved in caring for orphans. And here's the way God has called me to do it, is to write a check. I'll never forget the Sunday before we left to go get James. I went into the oldest lady Sunday school class. Our, kind of our widow's Sunday school class that we had at Hillcrest down in Pensacola. I went to their class every Sunday morning. And I would always go in and talk to those ladies. I love them and they love me. And they'd make fun of me and I'd make fun of them. We had that kind of relationship, you know. And as I went around the table, one of the ladies that I knew lived on a very fixed income, did not have a lot of family support. She was the one that was the most frail financially and everything else out of all those ladies. When I put my hand on her shoulder as I went around, she reached up with her other hand like that and put some paper in my hand. And she said, it's not much, but you're going to need every penny you can get as you go get that little boy. And when I walked out and opened my hand up, it was a $10 bill. For her, that was her widow's might, really. I knew that was a huge sacrifice for her to give me that $10. And a lot of me wanted to say, no, go give that back. Go and tell her you're covered, you're taken care of. And then I thought, no, I'm not going to take that blessing from her. This was her way of saying, we appreciate what you're doing, and I'm too old to adopt a child, but I want to have a part of this ministry and what you're doing. And let me tell you something, the last thing I'd want you to hear today is that everybody needs to adopt a child. Please, there are a lot of people I know that I hope never do. <laughs> it's like, no, please don't. <laughs> But I want us to get a, a right understanding. As, as, as Carlton was really hitting on this earlier, that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't have to do this, you get to do this. See, the gospel will never force you to do anything. The gospel frees you to do everything that God has called you to do, though. And that's the beautiful picture of it. And all of this is just this beautiful picture of the gospel and our adoption of, by Christ and given a new name. And there's so many ways of going in and comparing these two things together. My favorite story to tell is when we came home with Shaoli. We had traveled from Guangzhou, China, to Korea, to Atlanta, to Pensacola. 
And it was a total of 32 hours, I think, from the time we left our hotel to the time we pulled into our house. And it was in the early afternoon, if I remember right. We had our van and we, we pulled in as a family. We wanted to be there alone. We wanted to have those first couple of hours at our house. You know, no, no visitors, no anything. And when we pulled into the driveway, I remember James throwing the door back and running up. And I, I went up and unlocked the door and he's just trying to beat the door down, trying to get in. And, and I unlocked the door and he just took off running up the steps. And they're pulling Shally up behind them. Heather and Jared, and, and they take her, and they're going to show her her new room. And James went in, and he got in her closet, and he started pulling the shoes out and put them in the middle of the floor, and he would say, yours, and he'd go get some more stuff and put it in the middle of the floor and say, yours, and then he went to the dresser and pulled clothes out and put them on the floor and said, yours, and I'm thinking, my parental instinct was, stop, what are you doing, pulling all that stuff out, and thank God it hit me before I said anything. James knew something that we didn't know. James understood something that we didn't understand. He knew what it was like to go from having no family to having a family. He knew what it was like to get a new name. And that is the beautiful picture of the gospel itself. And unfortunately, many of us are not like James. We don't run around with our friends who don't understand the gospel and have the gospel and say, look, this is yours. This is what God is. This forgiveness is yours. We don't lay it out on the table or on the floor in front of them and, and weep and cry. We've lost something with that. But as I saw James doing it that day, I thought, man, he gets it. And we don't. All of this is yours. That's what I want you to think through today. What is God calling you to do? Where would God have you serve? Where would you be able to participate so that you could experience pure and undefiled religion? It may not be to adopt. Maybe it is. Maybe you need to be a mentor to a child in an at-risk environment. Maybe you need to be someone who's a babysitter for a family that adopts some children that have some really significant needs, and you know they need, a, they need a day out every now and then. Maybe you're a nurse, and you could go to those with the medically fragile kids. We went back in 2007 and adopted Shali. And then a couple of years ago, remember I said no other disabilities? We got a call from our state and said, we've got a little boy here. He's got some, oh gosh, JJ's list is too long. He was born at 25 weeks gestation. Weighed a pound and three ounces and had a diaphragmic hernia. Absolutely unbelievable. And she sends that picture. And it's like, are you kidding me? How are you going to say no to that? Here's our family now, which I think you've got a picture J.J. has now gone from this little tube that he received all of his food from for the first four years of his life to the other night eating some chicken and macaroni and cheese. The tube is now removed. All three of the youngest kids are deaf. That's just part of life in our house. That's no big deal to us. Maybe God hasn't called you to that, but God would be calling you because you know how to handle a G-tube. That doesn't freak you out. And so for some family that has a child that's on a G-tube, you would say, you know what? The first Friday night of every month, you're not out. I got the kids. 
Maybe it's writing the check. Whatever it is, that's what I would want you to pray through today. And understanding you don't do this out of guilt. We don't do this because we're forced to, but because of the gospel we get to. God has freed us to participate in this thing that he's given us through the gospel.